Christ Crucified, or The Marrow of the Gospel, evidently set forth in 72 sermons on the whole 53rd chapter of Isaiah by James Durham, one of the ministers in Glasgow and professor of divinity in the university there. Sermon 30, Isaiah 53, verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Every step of Christ's way to sinners, and every word whereby it is expressed, is wonderful. And therefore it is no marvel that the prophet doth by way of admiration put in this word, and who shall declare his generation? We showed you that we conceive these words to be those that express the prophet's turning of himself from Christ's humiliation to his exaltation. He hath insisted long in setting forth his wonderful abasement and humiliation, which these words import, he was brought from prison and from judgment, which look not only to his external imprisonment and to his coming to judgment before men, but also, mainly and principally, to the straits that he was brought into, and his arraignment before God's tribunal, and so to the cause of his suffering, to wit, for the transgression of his people, as the words following hold forth, which was not the cause of his censure before men, but the procuring cause of what he met with from and before God. But, though he was brought to prison and to judgment, to death and to the grave, yet they did not, they could not detain him. He was taken, or, as the word signifies, he was lift up from prison and from judgment, being the same word that followeth, he was cut off out of the land of the living, which supposes a turn and change from his humiliation to his exaltation, And these words, who shall declare his generation, set forth the unconceivable and unexpressible glory that Christ is exalted unto. So Acts 8, 33 and 35, where these words are cited, it is said, in his humiliation his judgment was taken away. That is, in the lowest step of his humiliation, his judgment, or that to which he was adjudged, was taken from him and he was declared free. However, since in these words our Lord's humiliation is implied and his exaltation expressed as following on it, we think it safest to understand it so. The words put together hold forth the high degree of Christ's glorious exaltation, so as his generation cannot be declared. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and gloriously exalted in another manner, and to another degree of glory than either angels or believers are, or can be capable of. For he that exalted is God, whose generation cannot be declared, death having no more dominion over him, and he having the keys of hell and of death. In a word, We take this, who shall declare his generation, most immediately to relate to Christ's exaltation as mediator, and to the glory wherewith he was invested, 
and to the dominion that he hath over all creatures. Yet considering that the prophet's scope is to set forth this as wonderful, and considering that the first step of his exaltation is his resurrection, whereby, as the apostle speaks, Romans 1.4, he was declared to be the Son of God with power, his resurrection being singular in this respect, that he rose by his own power, and considering that Acts 8.35, Philip began to preach to the eunuch Jesus Christ as the object of faith, we think it reasonable to conceive that he preached Christ to be God from this text, so as the eunuch might have a solid foundation for his faith, and also answer the scope which is to set forth the wonderfulness of Christ's love to elect sinners, who, being God, yet condescended to come thus low for saving of them. We may take in his Godhead immediately, from which, as the former steps of his humiliation received worth and efficacy, so he was thereby sustained and borne up under all those sufferings whereby his people are saved. From the first and second expressions put together, we shall draw three doctrines relating to three main articles of faith. The first whereof is this that our Lord had a deliverance from and victory over the lowest and most pinching parts of his humiliation and suffering, so that though he was at prison and judgment, yet he was lift up from both and had a glorious deliverance. This takes in three things, which the same grounds will confirm. First, that in his lowest estate and steps of humiliation, he was sustained and carried through, so that all the assaults which he was put to endure and encounter with from all his enemies, wicked men and devils, did not overcome him. Second, that as he in himself was borne through and sustained, so in respect of God's bar at which he was arraigned, he was absolved and set free. He so came through by paying of the debt that he had an absolution, as it is, 1 Timothy 3, at the end, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit. Our blessed Lord Jesus, being sustained by the power of his Godhead, was carried through in his sufferings, paid the elect's debt, and received the sentence of absolution, even as a person, to speak with reverence in such a subject, having paid the debt for which he was imprisoned, is absolved and set free. Third, it takes in our Lord's actual delivery. He not only received the sentence of absolution, but was actually set free, so that he was pleased to put himself in prison and in straits for us, so he was brought from the very step of his humiliation, from prison and from judgment, from death and from the grave, he nailed the handwriting which was against us to his cross, as the Apostle saith, Colossians two fourteen and 15. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And as it is, 1 Corinthians 15, at the close, he took the sting from death, disarmed it, and trode upon it. 
And there was necessity for this, even such necessity, that it was impossible it could be other ways, as we have it, Acts 2.24, it was impossible that he should be holden of death. This will be clear if we consider these things. 1. The person that suffered, he was not an ordinary, nay, nor a mere man, but God-man, as is clear. Acts 2.27, cited out of Psalm 16, where it is said, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. 2. The end of Christ's sufferings, which was to satisfy for the debt of his people, there having been no reckoning on his score or account, he being still in God's favor, and his Holy One in whom his soul delighted all along his sufferings, his sufferings being for the sins of his elect, and he being to make application of his satisfaction, and of the purchase made thereby to the elect for whom he suffered and purchased these things by his intercession, there was a necessity that he should get the victory of all. Otherwise, he should not have been a perfect and complete Savior, able to save to the uttermost those that come unto God by him, as the Apostle speaks. Hebrews 7.25, But such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. 3. It is clear also, if we consider the nature of the covenant, and of the promises made to him therein, upon his engaging and undertaking for the elect, as particularly verse 10 of this chapter, he shall see his seed and prolong his days. His duration shall be forever. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, and I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Our Lord's exaltation and victory over death being on the Lord's part conditioned to him the mediator, as well as he engaged to suffer, hence it is said, Psalm 110, He shall drink of the brook in the way, therefore shall he lift up the head. The uses are two. The first whereof serves for clearing and confirming our faith in a fundamental article of Christianity, without which it were both needless for us to preach and for you to hear or believe, and that is, that our Lord Jesus suffered, and also got the victory over suffering, that he was raised from the dead, and declared to be the Son of God with power, intimating that justice had gotten full satisfaction, in evidence and testimony whereof he was declared free, which is a main thing that believers have to believe, even that we have an exalted Christ, a raised-up Savior, who could not be detained by all the elect's guilt in prison. 2. It serves to be matter of strong consolation. It puts life in all Christ's offices and qualifications, and in all the promises made to believers. To wit, that our Lord Jesus is a living Christ, over whom death hath no dominion, and he overcame it, now to die no more. So that, as it is, Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save to the uttermost those that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. 
There is nothing that a soul need or can desire, but it is to be had in him. And if we look to particular instances, much consolation will arise from this ground. For, one, hath a believing sinner to do with accusations at the bar of justice? Is it not unspeakable consolation that their debt is paid? Hence it is said, Romans 8.33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who shall condemn? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again. It is that which gives proof of complete payment of the elect's debt and defiance to any accusations to come against the believer to his prejudice, because Christ hath not only died, but is also risen. Justice being well pleased with his satisfaction, he is let out of the prison. 2. If the believer hath to do with corruption, with the devil, and with many enemies, is it not strong consolation that our Lord is risen, and that the prince of this world is judged, that Satan is trodden underfoot, and that he shall and must reign till all his enemies be made his footstool? 3. Our Lord's resurrection hath a twofold further consolation with it to believers. Firstly, it serves to be a ground for the exercising of faith on him, that as he is risen, Romans 6, so we may expect that being spiritually dead with him to sin, we shall be raised with him to newness of life. Secondly, it is a pledge of believers' exaltation and complete victory over death and the grave, and over all enemies. For Christ being raised as the common head of all believers who are his members, they by virtue of his resurrection and by that same efficacy shall be raised, and it is impossible that they can lie under corruption. This is our great consolation who are believers and live under the gospel, that we have not these things as a prophecy of things to come, but as a plain history of things in part done, and by and by to be completely accomplished. Third, it hath also in it consolation in respect of temporal difficulties. What are they all? They are not sure as Christ's were. And the day is coming when believers shall have deliverance from them all. And therefore, since our Lord is risen, let no believers be afraid of any changes whatsoever. Secondly, observe that our Lord Jesus, being raised up from his state of humiliation, is invested and put in a most excellent and glorious condition, even such as the prophet cannot express, Who can declare his generation? saith he. Who can declare how glorious he is now? Look to two or three scriptures to confirm this. First, that Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. He hath set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principalities and powers and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Our Lord's throne is exalted far above angels and archangels, even out of sight. 
The second is Philippians 2.9, where having spoken of his humiliation, it follows, Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and etc. His exaltation is such as hath a dominion and supremacy with it over every name. He having, as it is, Colossians 1.18, in all things the preeminency. The third place is Hebrews 8.1. Of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the majesty in the heavens, where Christ's exaltation is set forth to be such as hath exalted him to the right hand of the majesty on high. Because this is one of the great articles of our faith, to wit, that Christ rose from the dead the third day and ascended into heaven and is set down on the right hand of God, we shall add a little more to clear it. And first, we should know that this exaltation of our Lord is not to be understood of his exaltation properly as he is God, in which respect there is no alteration in him. Though his declarative glory was veiled for a time during his humiliation, yet in himself, as he was God, he was still glorious and blessed over all. 2. When we speak of Christ's exaltation as mediator and as man, we do not mean that his human nature hath lost the essential properties of a creature, as if now when exalted he were holy or only God or as if the properties of the human nature were swallowed up in the Godhead. This would be inconsistent with his being true man, and would mar and obstruct our consolation exceedingly. But his exaltation consisteth, one, in the manifestation and declaration of the person that was humbled and brought low, to be God omnipotent, omnipresent, all-sufficient, infinitely wise, powerful, just, etc. For though these properties agree not to the human nature, yet they agree to his person, and they are manifested to be in him without question. 2. The exaltation of the human nature of Christ man, it is to an unconceivable height of glory, such as the human nature united to the divine nature is capable of, by very many degrees beyond anything that the elect, whether angels or men, are capable of, the personal union making him capable of far more glory, and his excellent offices calling for it. 3. This exaltation consists in his absolute dominion and kingly power, which is more observably, directly, and plainly manifested in the days of the gospel administration than it was under the law, so that now he is clearly known in respect of his kingly office to be God in our nature, clothed with our flesh, and to be Emmanuel, God with us. And that this Emmanuel hath all power in heaven and earth committed to him, he hath the keys of hell and of death, and is king of kings and lord of lords, is exalted far above all principalities and powers, and is given to be head over all things to the church. 
in which respect that is most properly to be understood when it is said that he is set on the right hand of God. So that now Jesus Christ, God and man in one person, is in the highest glory, and in absolute dominion, nearest unto God, far above that which angels or saints are capable of. As kings used to set their greatest courtiers and ministers, whom they would honor most on their right hand, and as Solomon set his mother on his right hand, so is our Lord set on the right hand of God in highest glory. It is true that as God he hath an absolutely sovereign and independent kingdom, yet as mediator, God-man, he hath a dispensatory kingdom next unto the Father in glory. 4. This exaltation consists in Christ's being furnished with qualifications suitable to that glorious condition wherewith he is invested. And although these qualifications of the man Christ be not simply infinite, yet they are far above what we can conceive. And the qualifications of the person God-man are infinite, in which respect he is omnipotent, all-seeing, and infinitely wise to provide everything that may be for the good of his church and people, and to prevent what may tend to their hurt, he being omnipresent, etc., The uses are three. 1. This should waken and rouse our spirits to an high, holy, and reverent esteem of Christ. He is God above all gods, King above all kings. He hath got a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, not superstitiously when he is named, but holily and reverently to think of him, and to worship and serve him. We conceive among many faults and evils in believers, this is a root evil, even low thoughts of the glorious Christ. So that because he hath become low to lift us up, we are ready to think the less of him. But oh, that we could behold the glorious condition he is exalted unto, and could look upon him as ere long we shall, coming in the clouds with power and great glory, in the glory of his Father, and all the holy angels with him. It would furnish us with reverent thoughts of him, though not to hurt faith and confidence, yet to breed holy awe and reverence in us towards him. The second use serves to show what a formidable party they have to contend with, who slight our Lord Jesus Christ, what loss they sustain who lose him, and what a great aggravation their sin hath who sin against him. Ye that slight, refuse, and oppose him, do ye know whom ye refuse, and whose dominion ye spurn against, and how hard it will be for you to kick against the pricks? Do ye know your loss, who lose him, and how it will aggravate your guilt who despise him? The more glorious Christ is, the greater will the sin of the unbeliever be. Therefore beware what ye are doing." Ye have a mighty, great, and strong party to deal with. And when the great day of his wrath comes, and when he shall appear in his glory, how will you be able to abide the least touch of it? It will aggravate your sin and heighten your misery that he whom the Father exalted was undervalued by you, 
that ye scorn to take a direction from him, or to submit to his censure, drawn forth in his name, and said, at least by your practice, let us break his bands asunder, and cast away his cords from us? But he hath set his king on his holy hill of Zion. For all that, and he that sits in heaven will laugh. The Lord will have you in derision. Think on it seriously, and know that he is no mean person whom ye slight and despise. And though this may now seem less than other sins, yet it will one day lie heavy on your conscience, above many, yea, above all other sins. The third use serves to be a motive and encouragement to them that hear this gospel to receive Christ, and for the consolation of believers who have received him. 1. It serves to encourage you all to receive him. He is no mean person that courts you, but King of kings and Lord of lords. And if he think it a happiness to be forever with him, then let it move you to close with him. And if ye do so, ye shall be made glorious as he is glorious. A due proportion betwixt the head and the members being kept, ye shall sit on the same throne with him and behold his glory, as he prayeth, John 17, I will that those whom thou hast given me may be with me to behold my glory. This is certainly a great privilege. If Christ be glorious, he calleth you to share with him in the same glory. 2. It serves for the consolation of believers who have received him. Ye have an excellent mediator, a most glorious head and husband, and a most excellent dowry, and ye shall know it to your superabundant satisfaction and joy in that day, when, as it is, Psalm 45, ye shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework, and shall enter into the king's palace, and share of his glory, and see him face to face, and sit with him on his throne, even as he hath overcome, and is set down with his father on his throne." Labor to be steadfast in the faith and hope of this good, glorious, and desirable day that is coming, when we shall not only see but partake of, and be fully and forever possessed of that which eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive of. Third, from the words as we expounded them, observe that our Lord Jesus Christ who suffered and was in his sufferings brought very low, is God. We find ordinarily in Scripture, especially through the New Testament, these three going together. 1. Christ's humiliation. 2. His exaltation following on that. And 3. His Godhead. His humiliation is not readily spoken of without his exaltation, nor his exaltation without his Godhead because it is impossible to separate Christ's exaltation from his Godhead, his exaltation being the evidence of his Godhead, and the prophet's scope here being to set forth Christ's exaltation. And Philip, preaching of it to the eunuch from this text, it is doubtless the contemplation of Christ's Godhead that occasioneth this admiring exclamation, Who shall declare his generation? which we apply, 
not so much to the ineffableness of his generation as to its being an evidence that he is God. There are three or four ways whereby the Scripture confirms this. Let me desire you, by the way, not to look on this as a little momentous or but a common doctrine. And since there are so many ignorant that we should be ashamed to tell, what we hear from some of you concerning the Godhead of Jesus Christ, ye should take better heed to it, being a main pillar of Christian religion, without which our preaching and your faith are vain. For he is not believed on at all, if he rest not on him as God. But to prosecute what we proposed, to wit, those several ways whereby the Scripture confirms this truth, and to this purpose consider, first, the expressed titles and names that are given to him in Scripture, and some Scripture sayings of him which hold it forth, of which we shall give three instances. The first is that of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, where, when Christ is prophesied of, it is said, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And what is he? He shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Here we have these three, his humiliation, exaltation, and Godhead. His humiliation, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. His exaltation, of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, upon the throne of David and his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice. And his Godhead is interjected and put in betwixt these two, in the names and titles given to him, Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. Not as personally taken, but as the word signifies, the Father of Eternity, from whom all things have their being. And for the same reason, chapter 714, he is called Emmanuel, God with us. A second place is that of Philippians 2.6, who, being in the form of God, thought it no robbery. He did God no wrong to be equal with God. He made himself of no reputation and took on him the form of a servant, etc. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, etc. A third place is that of Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners, spoken times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. And what is he by whom he spake to us? Who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. There is much of Christ's excellency holding forth here. He is the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person. 
The beam of the sun is not liker to the sun's light. The impression of the seal on the wax is not liker to the seal than the sun is to the Father. Nay, the liveliest resemblances fall infinitely short of a full and exact resemblance. The Father and He being the same God, and He being compared with the Father, not simply as God essentially taken, but as the second person of the Trinity, compared with Him who is the first person. O oh, deep and adorable mystery! A second way to clear and confirm it is to consider his works, oft-times joined with his name. The works of creation, providence, redemption, and guiding of his church. So we have it, John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, the substantial Word of the Father, the Son of his love, called the Word, either as expressing the Father's image, as a man's word expresseth his mind, or because as a prophet of the church he hath revealed the Father's will. It is said that this word was not only with God, but was God. And then follows in several verses together his works, the works of creation, all things were made by him, etc. The works of providence are attributed to him. John 5.17, My father worketh and I work, and the work of redemption and his glorious going through with it, declare him to be the Son of God. For none but God could redeem his church. Thirdly, for clearing and confirming of this truth, we may take the express confession of the saints in Scripture, whereon there is much weight laid, and I shall name but five or six of their confessions, which to this purpose are expressly and fully recorded. The first is that of Matthew 16.16. Whom do men say that I am? Peter answered, Thou art the Son of the living God. And Christ says, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood hath not revealed that unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. To let us know that it is not such a little thing to believe Christ's Godhead as many take it to be. And then he calls himself the rock on which his church is built. Christ's Godhead is the foundation of Christianity. A second is John 1.49. In Nathanael's words, Christ tells him, Before Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. And he, having got this proof of Christ's omniscience, presently breaks out, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. And that is the first thing his faith evidenceth itself in. A third place is John six sixty-seven to 67-69, where, when Christ is saying to the twelve, Will ye also leave me? Simon answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? For thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. There is much in these words, we believe and are sure that it is so. A fourth place is John 11.27, and it is Martha's confession. Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. 
The fifth place is that of John 10.28. When Christ bids Thomas reach hither his hand and put it into his side, his glory shines so full in his face that he cries out, My Lord and my God! And his faith is summed up and comprehended in that. The last place that we shall name is that of Acts 8.37. And it is the eunuch's confession, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, which is the sum of his faith. The fourth and last way of confirmation of this great truth is drawn from the worship which is due unto him, and hath been given unto him. He is the object of faith, John 14.11. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. He is the object of prayer, Acts 7.59. They stoned Stephen, calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And frequently, elsewhere in Scripture, he is prayed unto, though these two are not too curiously to be separated. Use 1 The first use serves to strengthen your faith in this, that our Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered for sinners and is offered to them in the gospel, is God equal with the Father, and so he is to be closed with and rested on as the brightness of the Father's glory. The reason why we would have you confirmed in the faith of this is not small, for it is a most necessary thing, and without the faith of it, all the work of our salvation will hang loose. Neither can we have any claim to eternal life, And therefore we desire you particularly who are ignorant hearers and who have the name of Christ often in your mouths and yet know not what he is, to know, remember, and believe that he that is the Son of Mary is also the eternal Son of God, being God before he was incarnate and before the world was made and the maker of all that was made. Use 2. The second use serves to let you know that, though it be a most necessary thing to be confirmed in the faith of this truth, that Christ is God, yet it is a greater difficulty to believe and be persuaded of it than the most part take it to be. Many sad proofs whereof we have in people's words and more in their practice. Flesh and blood saith Christ, Matthew 16, hath not revealed this unto thee. It is a wonder when so many people's faith comes, who never found any the least difficulty in this. And it is a wonder that so few are thoroughly grounded in the faith of it. So that if they were called and put to it, they durst not give their oath that he is God. Yea, if we would look on a little further, we should find that the faith of this is but scarce amongst us, not to speak of the gross ignorance of many who will say when asked that he is not equal with the Father, or that he was made God, and other such-like expressions will they have that are abominable to be once named amongst Christians. Men, through their ignorance, falling into damnable heresies on the matter, and yet not knowing that they do so. And if our blessed Lord were made a God, and not the same God with the Father, For the proving of him to be God proves him to be the same God, there being but one God. 
you should consider for convincing you that it is thus with many of you, one, the little fear that is in men and women of the majesty of Christ as God. They durst not walk with so little fear of him if they believed indeed that he were God. What made the Jews with the scribes and Pharisees to spit upon him and despise him? But because they wanted the faith of his Godhead. And have not ye the same nature in you? Ye live in a place where the faith of Christ's Godhead is professed and is not questioned. But your practice says to beholders that ye believe it not, because ye fear him not. 2. That your souls do so little welcome the offer of the gospel that tells that ye believe him not to be God. 3 that ye do not place your happiness in believing on him and in the way of holiness. Ye say, in effect, of what use is Christ? Ye care not for him? Whence it is that so many live contentedly without him and are not solicitous about the enjoying of him. 4. Even in believers there is much unbelief of this truth which is sadly evidenced by this, that they do not so bless themselves in him, and that they do not so reckon themselves to have got a good portion, and to be made up in him as David doth, Psalm 16, where he saith, and holily glorieth, the lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places, etc. And by the frequent discouragement that is incident to believers, as if Christ had not the guiding of them, and of what concerns them, or could not guide all things well enough for their good. If he were believed to be God, it would quash temptations, banish discouragement, comfort under crosses, sweeten every condition, induce to holiness, restrain from sin. And in a word, it cannot be told what is contained in the one truth when solidly believed. For what can possibly be wanting to the believer in him that is God? He hath the fullness of the Godhead to supply whatever they want, and sustains the relation of a husband to the believer to make it good to them. And he is furnished with suitable qualifications to make the application thereof. What then could be wanting if this were thoroughly believed that he is God? Let me say it to you, The faith of this would provoke to more holiness and to study more the power than the profession of religion and would help us to live a more comfortable life in every condition. This audio recording was read by Michael Ives. I hope you found it enlightening and edifying. Visit westportexperiment.com for more audio resources and where I write about parish missions, the care of souls, and all things Reformed.